If capitalism has proven to be so hostile to life on Earth, how does it endure for so long? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Virtually everybody in the 21st century, it seems, has come to an understanding that capitalism is not so much an invented, controlled, and manipulated construct as it is nearly universally accepted as simply a law of nature, like supply and demand. The damage that capitalism has done is remarkable. What explains its tremendous tenacity then? Economic, social, and governmental systems which have tried transcending and replacing capitalism by implementing the anti-capitalist ideas of Marx and Engels have largely proved insufficient. Even in the massive powerhouse countries of Russia and China, capitalism, it seems, now rules. Hardly a worker paradise with equality for all. There are now actual billionaires in those allegedly communist countries. Even in Marxist places like Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam, free market capitalism has shoehorned itself in. So how is, so is that it? Has unfettered free market capitalism simply proven itself superior and that's why it lasts? Is, is it just the way it is? As the profits to the very few continue to leap into the stratosphere, it's ironic and frankly terrifying that the results of the continued operation of the system has become an actual existential threat to the earth, to all life itself. Our guest today, Peter Dolak, penned an article on Counterpunch asking the difficult but truly necessary question, how does an economic system so hostile to life endure for centuries? He notes capitalism seems firmer in the saddle than ever, spreading its suffocating tentacles to virtually every place on earth. End of quote. As the kids today might ask, WTF? I can't say the rest of it on the air. Peter Dolak is a longtime activist and writer whose writings can be found on Counterpunch and on his blog, Systemic Disorder. He's the author of the book, It's Not Over, Learning from the Socialist Experiment, and his newest book, What Do We Need Bosses For? That'll be published later this spring by Autonomedia. I have to say that right. His Counterpunch article uses as a base for his multi-pronged query, insights, and observations in a new book by Saren Mao, called Mute Compulsion, a Marxist Theory of the Economic Power of Capital. Mao is a professor and postdoctoral researcher based in Copenhagen, Denmark, and he's an editor of the journal Historic Materialism. Well, Pete, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heck of a uh, struggle to keep democracy alive these days. It seems like it's a greater struggle than ever these days, uh, certainly. Uh, you know, now now we're uh, it's almost like being back in the 1930s. You know, with with the uh, Trump forces, you have uh, 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 certain parallels to to, to fascism. Indeed, um, it's not it's not there yet. Although 
Trump personally seems to have aspirations to being a, a fascist dictator. Fortunately, he does not have anywhere near sufficient uh, support to achieve his goals, thankfully. But uh, then we have other people like yeah. uh, Ron DeSantis yeah. in, in the wings. So the, the danger, uh, we're very much in a danger position these days. I think there's no, no question about it to anyone who's paying attention. Yes, no question about it. And, and, and banning books is like, you know, that's the first step. Well, Today's enthusiastically ignorant political right denies historical reality. Of course, they, they have to deny it. They erase history. The demonstrable fact is that capitalism is based um, on the exercise of what you recognize as violence. It's based on violence, draconian laws, slavery, and colonialism. It did not just spring up naturally. Slavery as much as others might deny it, it was not some errant, rare deviance from the creation of what is now America. Violent racism is at our core. The so-called, also the settling of the West, the so-called settling of the West, that was then, we don't rely on that anymore. Or do we? Only more subtly. And as, as you note, Pete, violence is not necessarily ever faced by a typical working person in the advanced capitalist countries. End of quote. I'm reminded of my inspiring former political science professor so many decades ago who defined politics as the economy of violence. Please, Pete, give some examples of the violence that was applied so copiously in capitalism's early days and how it was not such a rarity. Right. Well, no, no, it wasn't a rarity at all. Of course, capitalism evolved very slowly, literally over a period of centuries, and of course, unevenly more quickly, you know, sooner in, in Northwest Europe, in particular uh, England, but also in what's present-day Netherlands and Belgium, known as the United Provinces uh, uh, back in those days, mm -hmm. and uh, then gradually spread uh, around the globe to our current uh, uh, situation. So uh, how did capitalism evolve out of feudalism? And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the contradictions and blockages within feudalism uh, uh, were, were slowly eroded as trading uh, slowly became a, a bigger and bigger part. And uh, lords wanted uh, luxury consumption. And uh, as trade expanded uh, with East Asia and then eventually had colonialism in the um, in the Americas uh, with first silver mining and gold mining. And then that quickly morphed into uh, all kinds of production. Uh, where uh, all sorts of crops that you can't grow in Europe, or for that matter in North America, uh, you could grow in the Caribbean. So uh, the crops mm -hmm. like sugar, rum, that, things like that uh, became very valuable. These were rare uh, luxury items in in in, the, in those early days. Now, how do you um, how do you mass produce that? You yes. don't. You you've already decimated the, the native people of the Caribbean and the North American and South American uh, mainlands. Uh, there's not enough Europeans there to do this, so what do you do? You tap into what were pre-existing uh, slavery networks, but you morph it way, way beyond where you used to be. Now, in country, places like the Ottoman Empire, you know, slavery was not unknown before European, the era of European in, in, imperialism. But in a place like the Ottoman Empire, uh, slavery was at a, a drastically smaller scale. Not that it's acceptable on any, any scale, of course. Uh, but the slaves were used for, you know, uh, house household servants, uh, as soldiers, even as administrators. So 
they weren't used to accumulate or, or, or produce profits, whereas they were taken from Africa and, and used to, uh, as, as slaves to produce the sugar and the rum and, and all these various products there, and these were enormously profitable. Yes. And those profits go back to England or France or where have you, or to Spain, uh, along with all the silver that was being pumped on, particularly out of, South Amer- out of the South American Andes. And this is where the capital came for those places in Europe to build their infrastructure, to uh, create the investment capital to invest, and now they could go on to other places and had the money to, to invest and take over and establish other things. And at the same time, as they gradually uh, learned how to sail around Africa mm. and off into the rest of Asia, uh, you know, gunpoint diplomacy. Uh, well, it was distressed on the gunpoint, <laughs> of course, where they went in there and literally at gunpoint, like, okay, you know, we're, we're taking over your trading networks. You're going to start trading with us, whether you like it or not. I mean, it got so extreme in the second half of the 19th century in China, where uh, you know Britain was trying to pump uh, opium right. into in China. And needless to say, the Chinese government, tottering as it was, didn't want any point of this. And at some point, they finally said, "Okay, that's it. No more, no more opium." Uh, you know, uh, and we're going to burn everything and mm-hmm. destroy all the open we can get. <laughs> and Britain's response to that was to send in the Navy and uh, invade China at several points uh, and force a very uneven treaty whereby China was now required to take mass quantities of opium, which were incidentally mm-hmm. grown in India. So now in India, they're not growing subsistence crops for themselves, but they're growing opium for export into, into uh, China. And of course, the Indians are not getting any of the uh, that's seeing any of the profits of that, needless to say. And uh, what what was the basis for Britain doing such an incredible thing? Well, Britain said, well, it's our right to trade. And just think about this crazy concept here. It's our right to trade, i.e., it's our right to force this, this, this terrible product, opium, which we don't allow at home and we don't use ourselves, and right. we hang the peop- any of our own people who use the stuff, but we're going to force it on other people because it's highly profitable for us. And at this point, also, you had some United States interests who were also cutting in on the action. Then, yep. of course, Britain was still the leading imperial power at those days yes. until uh, the U.S. Uh, edged, out, edged out the Brits and um, kind of took over that role uh, during the interwar period. And then... Um, and then completely uh, at the end of the Second World War. So, you know, this is a process that, ex- that exp- you know, uh, unfolded over, over, over decades. And we haven't even gotten into the internal struggles that went on in places like, like Britain, uh, which, of course, feudalism was a very rural, agricultural-based uh, uh, kind of economy. Most of your production was for your own use or, you know, maybe to go to the market once a week, you know, for, for your neighbors and exchange whatever needed to be exchanged. Nobody can be completely self-sufficient, of course. And um, so how do you create the workforce Right. to go into the factories mm-hmm. when the peasants, you know, not living high on the hog, but, you know, served them as well in the past, and, you know, they don't have the best deal, but they're basically self-proficient, and they're okay on their things. So, at the same time, wool production uh, becomes a big luxury item and other things, so uh, some of the lawyers decided, hmm, going to be more profitable to get into uh, into the wool industry, so they kick, start kicking the peasants off and uh, converting their farmlands into sheep grazing areas there. Uh-huh. Now, where are the 
peasants are going to go. They've got to go somewhere. So Britain now passes, and it was far only from Britain and the continent. You had a lot of equally draconian laws, or they press all kinds of laws where, where if you were caught begging, uh, at your first time, they 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 would literally brand you and 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 warn you. And your second time begging, they would execute you. I mean, this is this is how draconian it was, and all kinds of other rules. To basically, like you got kicked off the land, you've got nowhere to go, you can't survive, mm. you can't beg, you can't ask for alms. So your only choice is to go into the into the factory. And why else would somebody go from being a semi self sufficient uh, mm. farmer? even on a small basis, to working 14 or 15-hour days, six days a week, uh, under sweatshop conditions. Nobody, who, who would do such a thing? Nobody would. So people had to be forced into doing this. And from thus, you created the, the first working class in, in, um, in England. Now, of course, you had bits of wage labor in England, on the continent, and other places, but it was a very small part of the economy. The economy was basically on feudal lines. Now, as all these processes uh, uh, continued to get bigger and bigger and develop further and further, and as the reach of the capitalists went further and further uh, around the world, uh, eventually the capitalist system developed out of, the, out of, out of feudalism, and once the mm. Industrial Revolution came along, that pretty much uh, uh, so greatly increased the power of the, of the, er, early, uh, the early countries uh, that they became able to use more force to continue this process, further develop it, and over time, now we get to today's world where you know capitalism is in you know every nook and cranny of the world. There's almost no place where those tentacles don't extend to. And the the so much of, of what you said, you know, the force is necessary, and the the to defend it and to try to justify it by saying, well, it's just our right to trade. Boy, does that ever cover up a whole bunch of stuff? <laughs> the book that you discussed in your counterpunch piece is titled "Mute Compulsion." Interesting title. What, tell us, please, about what its author means, and in what ways <laughs> violence no longer needs to be demonstrated directly to produce the same desired effects, keeping working people in their deeply, deeply subordinate place and accepting it quietly. How, how is politics still the economy of violence? Ah, that gets us to the heart of the matter, of course. Uh, that phrase, mute compulsion, that's actually the author's, uh, 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 Soren Mao's uh, uh, Translation from the original German. Frank, uh, Marx wrote most of his big works, including the three volumes of Capital, uh, in German. Mm. Now, the common uh, and I have no no uh, no ability to speak or write German, so I can only tell this secondhand. But the the standard uh, translation of that is usually uh, dull compulsion. And and Soren Mounds' contention, he does discuss this in his book, that actually mute compulsion would be the the better translation in, in, in his view. And, uh, you know, it is a little bit more poetic than, than dull compulsion, uh, mm-hmm. as my, uh, as my partner said to me, and I think she's right about that. Uh, so what, what does that actually mean? And what that means is people, uh, there's, there's a hidden compulsion to force people, uh, to, you know, stay with the program as it were, I, I, you know, you get up, go to work, you work for capitalists and you hand over your surplus, labor or your surplus value, I should say, to, to uh, your employer, the, 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 the capitalist. So I guess I should explain that term because, you know, we in the capitalist world are not generally familiar 
with those terms. Now, this all comes down to where does profit come from? Now, what the standard would be, well, you you buy low and you sell high. Mm-hmm. Well, if the entire economy were, was a flea market, yeah, that would be the source of profit. And obviously for one individual, that can be a sort, you know, you've got something around your house, you don't, you catch that you don't want anymore and you sell it. Well, you might make a profit on that. Although mm-hmm. I guess if it's an old couch, you likely wouldn't. But anyway, uh, that's not how a whole modern capitalist economy works, obviously. So uh, now we get down to the question of use value versus exchange value. And this is another difference between feudalism and capitalism, whereas in feudalism, production was for use value, i.e., you made it for yourself, or maybe you might have traded it with your neighbor for something that they made that you need or something like that. But basically, you weren't producing for a market. You weren't producing it to, to sell it. You're like, producing mm-hmm. it because, you know, it's a necessary thing. Now, in capitalism, production is for what we call exchange value, i.e., you make it so you can sell it to somebody. You can sell it in in an open market. So maybe that stuff is needed. Maybe mm-hmm. it isn't. Mm-hmm. Now, if it were everything were needed, you wouldn't have such a vast advertising industry. So that's to be a big advertising industry to convince us to buy all the stuff we don't necessarily need and didn't even know we wanted until you know was bombarded uh, forty times on the on the television right. <laughs> or on the or you know is reading through an internet article and you see the same advertisement like six times every three paragraphs, which is, gets rather annoying. Mm-hmm. Anyway, why, why do they do this? They've got to convince us to buy, because a modern capitalist society is based on consumer consumption. You know, in the United States, something like 70% of, of the economy is literally based on consumer consumption, i.e. all the household stuff and everyday stuff we buy from our toothbrush up to our automobile. And in any advanced capitalist country, that's usually somewhere between 60 and 70%. So production, therefore, is for exchange. So how does the capitalist get the profit? Well, again, standard standard economics, which is standard ideology, would say, well, he sells it in the marketplace and and gets the buying price and makes the profit. Hurrah! All the capitalists, he's a, he's a genius. Look what he's done. He made his profit. Well, what actually happens is when the capitalist sells the product, he or she, uh, that's the realization of profit. So where does it actually come from? It's because the capitalist paid the worker a lot less than what the product was valued for and sold for to make the product. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's where the concept of surplus value comes from, i.e. you get paid uh, a certain amount and the product or service, and this is not just for you know people working on assembly line, people who are behind a computer and provide a service, uh, and it works exactly the same way. Even if you're an accountant, say you're 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 a good accountant, you went to a good school, you got you got a bachelor's, you're getting a really nice salary, so you're getting fifty dollars an hour. I right? a good accountant is going to get paid a lot of money. Now, that's a lot of money, okay? But probably the big accounting firm is probably selling billing. The client at you know a hundred dollars an hour, a hundred fifty dollars an hour, because you know the client's a big corporation; they they can afford to yeah. pay that that kind of thing there. So that's a big gap. So that gap between the fifty an hour that the accountant gets and the hundred fifty dollars that the accounting firm is billing the mm-hmm. client that's surplus value. Now, of course, the the, the, the the capitalist, you know, obviously has to pay rent or mortgage on their facility. Uh, you know the you know, obviously, you've got to pay for the 
their benefits like like health care. Uh, maybe they had to take out a loan, so you've got to pay interest, all these things. You know, obviously they don't keep all of the surplus value. They have to share it out. Maybe Maybe they make a product but they're not comfortable doing that, and they hire a distributor distributor to, to distribute the product. And obviously, so all of that is sharing out of some of the surplus value. So what the capitalist ultimately keeps after sharing all that out, that's where the profit comes from, and that's how the capitalist uh, makes the profit. So uh, obviously, uh, you need workers to do this. You need people to be forced to work to do this. Now, in a capitalist system, um, we have a choice. We could go to work and earn a paycheck, or we could starve and become homeless. So it's not really a difficult choice to make, whether we have a regular employment or, say, we freelancers. You know, I, I currently am, am, am regularly employed these days. Fortunately, I, I, I work for a good company, so I, I'm good luck there. But I, in my past, I had a three-year stretch where, where I freelanced and, you know, you're always on out and the lookout for work. And, you know, so it was very easy to be disciplined about it, even when mm. you didn't have a regular job. Well, I'd like to pay my rent and I would like to eat. So therefore, I'm going to get this job done. It was not a hard decision. It's not a hard decision for, 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 for any of us. So it's this whole system that's in place that compels you the compulsion yes. Yes, to, 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 to go to work. And if you're lucky, maybe you have a good job and you actually get a good wage and, you know, you could put something away for your retirement and, and, and your vacation, what have you. For a lot of people, you don't have good luck and you've got to take whatever bad job, mm-hmm. whatever low-paying job is out there uh, uh, with, with miserable conditions and a miserable boss and maybe a really long commute, especially if you live in place like New York area, like, like I do. Uh, but you don't have a choice because, you know, how else are you going to eat? How else are you going to keep a roof off, off your help? So that's what compels people to take all these bad, awful jobs to even work in sweatshop conditions. Yep. And of course, outside the core capitalist core, i.e. the advanced capitalist countries of North America, Europe, Japan, uh, uh, where the, the, the repression of workers is, is much worse than it is here, and they're forced mm-hmm. to migrate. And of course, this also explains why people migrate. I mean, the right wing has crazy ideas like people just wake up one morning and slap their head on their forehead, slap themselves and say, hey, I know, let's leave everything behind and migrate thousands of hundreds and even thousands of miles on a dangerous journey where we might get killed to go to a place where we're not welcome and don't speak the language just for the hell of it. I mean, this is what the right wing would have us think. It's ridiculous. Only people who are in really desperate situations would do such a thing. And the fact that millions of people, tens of millions of people are in such desperate shape that they would do such things tells us how well this whole system is working. So a wall ain't going to work, let's face it. <laughs> People, they're, they're compelled. It's compulsion. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're kind of really getting a lesson in what capitalism really is about. And it's something that we don't think about every day. Our guest is Peter Dol- Pete Dolak, who's uh, got an article in Counterpunch asking the question, how does an economic system so hostile to life endure for centuries? And we are learning how it does. And I was taught back in high school that what separates man from other mammals is that we are the tool makers, the others are not. Well, actually, that's debatable. It seems like some other mammals do make tools and use them. You observe that humans use tools not for convenience, but because of necessity 
and that human tools are absolutely crucial for understanding how how such a thing as economic power is possible. Please explain how the use and access of tools builds the case that, that your author Mao means by mute compulsion. It's about ownership and control of the means of production, correct? Bringing us back to uh, That's Francis. absolutely correct, Bert. Uh, in, indeed so. Uh, now, modern production, you've got, you know, first we think of a, of a factory with a big assembly line, you know, at the automobile factory or something like that. Or maybe we're in a service industry and we have computers and we have supply chains that go around the world that we have to manage. Uh, you have all kinds of complexities to do that. Right? The individual person, we don't have the facilities. I, I, you know, I go, how many of us could go out and say, yeah, I'd like to start up a factory. You know, we, we, we don't have the capital. We don't have the money to do anything like that. So, uh, this is another way that we're forced to become employees or IE sell our labor power because that's, that's what we do. We have the ability to labor, IE the ability to do a job and we accept employment. So again, because the employer gets the profit by paying us much less than the value of what we produce, i.e. The, the surplus value. Uh, therefore, you know, again, we're compelled uh, uh, to do this because only the big employer, you know, has the capital and the means to supply all these all these tools. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, in some industries we can work as a freelancer. You know, say we're a writer or an editor, as as I, I've, which is how I personally earn my living, and I could do that at a, uh, at one time. Uh, I think it would be much more. I don't think I could do that now because conditions are just different. Uh, where you know I didn't really need too many means of production. I needed a computer and an internet hookup to be able to send the work out. Even this is in the 1990s when the internet was uh, was pretty new. Yeah. But all, all all I was as a as a uh, you know a freelancer or an I, I independent contractor. I guess to use a more technical term is you know I was an employee without a regular job. That's really what it amounted to. So if you're a freelancer, you're still basically employee you're just you know have a lot of different employers and your your periods of employment may may be short unless you have a a, a long-term deal uh for 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 yourself so again uh because the 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 capitalist has the means of production has the tools has you know the assembly line and everything that goes into it or maybe you work in construction and the employer there has the trucks and and the big and the big earth moving equipment and all the other things that that are necessary uh, uh to do that you don't have that so uh for you to earn a living this is another area of compulsion you've got to go and hire yourself out to the employer who does have uh who who does have those 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 tools i.e. the you know the means of production to use the the, the technical term mm-hmm. And, and you know we were the the, the violence the uh, the oversight you know you don't have to see it all the time but the the control of the tools is still there uh, I interviewed uh, an old friend about uh, his book on Amazon the people don't realize you know they think about well I'll just you know Amazon what a cool system it it delivers it really quickly they have. Sp- you can, every inch, every uh, millimeter, it seems, of those factories are are monitored by uh, cameras. That's you know really kind of adverse working conditions. Uh, that's for sure. And so it it goes on and on. And it, you know it's not the overt slavery that there's been before, but it's it's still uh, mute compulsion, as the title of the book is there. 
And uh, go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, boy, I, I, have, I have an enormous respect for the people in Amazon who are organizing those, those unions and going, going through so much and facing uh, uh, such, such, such an all-out battle. You think, think about how much they're, they're spending more money fighting the unions than it would be to just say, okay, yeah. have your union and we'll, we'll, we'll pay you a fair wage. Uh, but, of course, they're really? the power concept uh, uh, the conception comes into, in, into play here. So, you know, how does technology get used in an unequal world? I, I'm often reminded, I, I, I like to write, read science fiction, and I remember uh, Arthur C. Clarke would always write, uh, you know, there is no evil technology, there are only evil uses of technology. And I've always been inclined to agree with that, because what could technology do? Think about you know, if we had control of our workplaces, say we work cooperatively, where you know we all, you know, one person, one share, say, or whatever relationship we had, or even if, uh, and even if a company were state-owned but it was democratically run and open to you know public participation, et cetera, where we had genuine control, we weren't a cog in a machine, and but you know we were one of the creators of the product or service uh, that was being uh, produced in in a, in a, in a in a, in a given country, uh, company, excuse, uh, excuse me, uh, then, you know, technology would be a good thing. We could use it to save our labor, to, to, to maybe cut costs, uh, maybe to, to make our distribution system better, i.e. we could use it to, you know, maintain the, the you know, the profitability of, of, of the company, uh, and, um, distribute among ourselves and maybe distribute some to our surrounding community since we're part of our community. And um, this would be technology now would be applied in a positive way to help us and to lessen and reduce the stress of our, of our, of our work day. Now, that would be the best way yes. of applying it. But what happens in an unequal situation, especially a drastically unequal company like Amazon, it becomes a tool of coercion, of control, and, and where, you know, you're reduced to literally a cog in a machine. I mean, uh, we've all read, I certainly have all the horror stories of what it's like to work at Amazon, where people literally have to urinate in a bottle because they can't take five minutes to go to the bathroom because they're off clock uh, uh, for, 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 t for, too, for too long. I, I mean, I can't imagine that level of inhumanity. I mean, in a, in a, in a humane run place, who would who would institute such a thing? Uh, that that's insane. I mean, we're we're human beings, and uh, but where you have such coercive, one-sided things, technology now becomes an evil because it's applied in an in an evil way. And you, know, a lot of this is going around. Maybe not quite as uh, Amazon, I guess, is the drastic, most drastic example. But you know, I, I hear oftentimes people who are working at home in in white-collar service kind of jobs, and and uh, there's bossware installed on there, so if there's not a keystroke in a certain period of time, uh, you know they they get uh, they get rung up. It's like why aren't why aren't you working? Uh, you know, again, this kind of surveillance stuff uh, is a consequence of capitalism. It's a consequence of the drastically unequal uh, relations between employer and employee. Yes, there, there, there certainly is. It's, it's, it's certainly uh, not, not equal, and it, economic democracy is a possibility. It's, it can, it can happen. It has happened, and people get frustrated. You know, there are never, never good results when people feel powerless over their own destiny, and so many people do these days everywhere. There's, there's this anger 
at the largely amorphous but immensely powerful institutions which exercise such power over people's lives. And people feel really frustrated and angry. And we've seen all too often right-wingers claim to be populists, and I, I suppose maybe they are, but they take advantage of this frustration. They're able to capture it. Victor Orban's Hungary, Bolsonaro's Brazil, and Trump's America. You know, they take the anger and, you know, use it to, to, to increase their own dictatorial power. And you write that Dr. Mao examines the definition of power. You cite his quote, this quote, the power of capital can thus be defined as capital's capacity to impose its logic on social life. What did he mean? And how does, how does that manifest itself in ways we've seen in the 20th and 21st century? Can you give us some examples? Okay. Uh, some of the examples are what we've already talked about, how people are compelled to sure. take bad jobs to endure awful working conditions, etc. Yep. Uh, at, at, et, et that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, as, the, as corporations get bigger and bigger and get their fingers in more and more things and get more and more capital and become more and more powerful, what do they do? They naturally want to tilt the scales even more in, into their favor. So now they, uh, you have a, here in the United States, you have a, a system that's all based on if you want to get office, you need big, massive amounts of mm -hmm. donations. So mm -hmm. who has the money to give big, massive amounts of donations? It's right. the corporations and it's the top executives there who collect these enormous amounts of money. So they, you know, hand out all this money and, you know, they don't really have to course it. I'm sure there's never a conversation where the donor says to the political candidate, okay, you know what's expected of me right. now. I, I, I doubt very much there's any arm wrestling arm wrestling at all in, 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 in that sense. But the recipient of it knows, you know, where his bread is buttered and you know, and even even if they don't think about it quite that way, they know where their right. donations are coming from and what perspective uh, uh, is having the uh, influence on them. So if all you hear is the perspective of big pharma or, or, or big corporations in this or that industry, and you don't hear the experiences of labor, of working people, of community leaders, well, what's you know how are you going to tilt naturally you're going to tilt by the, the people who have all the influence on you who who have your ear and if they're also the ones giving you all your money without which you cannot get office well you know you're gonna whatever you might think you're gonna kind of over time bend that way and uh it's just going to become like a natural thing there. Mm -hmm. So what do these corporations expect? There's, this is not just right. simply like just, hey, we think you're a really nice guy. We'd <laughs> like, like to see you in office. It's, it's not like that at all, of course. No. And so, you know, they're expecting things. So, you know, they come along and say, yeah, you know, uh, this, 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 uh, this, this environmental regulation, you know, it's really uh, kind of crimping our, our, our profits. So, you know, here we've, we've, we've come up, we've come up with the bill here. You know, you can, tinker and toy with it here, but, you know, we think it'd be really good. You know, it, it would really help for jobs. This is Everything is always that way. You right. know, we'll, we'll be able to create more jobs mm -hmm. if our profits go, go up. And, and, the, and, and the political office also says, oh, more jobs, good, that will make me more popular. So maybe not be thinking along the lines of, yes, it's not so mechanical that, yes, my donor demanded I do this, therefore I would do that. It's very likely to not be mechanical, uh, certainly in the over, in most cases. It's more of a matter of, like, 
hmm, you know, you're already open to the influence of, of the donor, and they're saying, you know, this will create more jobs. Well, that will make me popular. I'll get reelected if people have more jobs. Okay, this, this, this sounds good to me. I think this is a good idea. So that goes in there, and other, like my other people in the party are getting the same thing, and mm-hmm. probably people in the other party are getting much the same thing as well. So they all get together and, you know, mark it up, make some tweaks, change a little things, maybe have to make a concession in there to, to, to get enough people to get it over the line, but it gets over the line. And and sure enough, it goes in and the profits go up and those pesky environmental regulations are gone and profits have gone up. Isn't everything wonderful? Except, of course, they're not yep. hiring more people. Where is all that extra profit uh-huh. going from? It's going into the shareholders' pockets and into bonuses for the executives. Uh, and, you, you know, you see, you see studies on this because periodically, at least once a year, I like to write about all these dividends and, and, and uh, share buybacks, which is another, uh, another way of juicing the stock price and, I, and therefore uh, indirectly putting more profit in, into uh, big corporate pockets. And um, there, there are years when, when the composite of the biggest corporations, the Fortune 500, uh, the composite of what they pay out, in dividends and spend on stock buybacks is greater than their profits. So where where is that money coming from? They're probably you know taking out a loan somewhere, uh, or maybe they're even selling more shares at the same time that they're buying back other other shares. You know to keep to keep this craziness going. So there's nothing productive about this. In fact, just the opposite is about the most unproductive thing you 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 can do. So hooray for more profits. That means. We're going to raise our dividend. We're going to buy back more shares, and then now the profits will be shared among fewer shareholders. The mm-hmm. shareholders are going to be very happy, and Wall Street's going to bid that stock price up. And the CEO, a part of his package, is in stock options and, and in stocks. So he's very happy to see that. And and the Wall Street, you know, Wall Street has a lingo for everything. So the lingo there is is aligning, uh, uh, is, is having the executives' interests aligned with share with shareholder interests. And isn't this mm-hmm. a Wonderful thing. So what you get language, is yes. you get the, the you 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 get Wall Street finance capital. You get the executives there, and they wrangle all the time who gets the bigger share of the pie. But they do agree on one thing: they get all the pie. Workers, who of course it's their work, who actually create the pie in right. the first place. Well, they they get they don't do anything. They're lowly workers. We we gave them a paycheck when you know they got health insurance. What more do they want? <laughs> Go away. What are you talking about? So. They what? battle each other out and often will sue each other <laughs> in, in court. Now, I, I one time in my life, I actually spent a couple of years on the lead financial wire service of Dow Jones, uh, uh, the ticker. Oh, wow. So it was an education. So it was all the things I thought I knew about finance. And then I saw, gee, it all really is true. It really does work the way I, I think it does. So so it was the endless stream of press releases. And, and, you know, at the end, you know, they give whatever news they give. And then, you know, a little paragraph at the end of what their business is. And always business was always, you know, uh, so-and-so company, you know, uh, uh, makes widgets uh, uh, for, for the widget industry and enhances shareholder value. And time and again, you'd always see this, whatever product or service, and enhancing shareholder value. This is, this is what their company did. Now, enhancing shareholder value, that, that's kind of an odd-sounding phrase. What, what could that mean? And that means one thing. We're going to do whatever it takes <laughs> so that our stock price goes up. If we've got to lay off a bunch of workers, because that's the sort of thing that makes Wall Street very happy, that's what we'll do if we have to take our profits and not, you know, say, let's give something, let's give bonuses to our workers who created that. 
and said, we'll take all that money and we'll buy back the shares. And now the share price will go up because less shareholders will be, uh, will, will be sharing of the profits. That makes Wall Street really happy. So these are the sorts of things that enhance shareholder value. Uh-huh. And, and, and you see this every, all the time. I mean, time after time after time on all the press releases. This, so it tells you who calls the tune. And who controls the language has the power, you know, job creators. That was brilliant. I remember seeing that, you know, job creators. Boy, people actually bought into that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about an important aspect of, of our society, what capitalism really is. Our guest today is Pete Dulloch, who's written a very interesting article on, uh, on uh, Counterpunch, uh, asking the question, how does an economic system so hostile to life endure for centuries? And it's not, you know, there is violence, there is compulsion, but we, we and, you know, the, the, the politicians, virtually all of them rely on big money from big corporations and, and ultra-wealthy people. However, there was Bernie Sanders. He was able to raise a whole, but he shocked the heck out of him by raising an average of $27 uh, per contributor. A whole bunch of people, you know, like that picture of a whole bunch of little fish eating one big fish. And we also briefly mentioned economic democracy and national health insurance. You know, that, that other places around the world have it. It would be cheaper. It would save money to provide national health insurance. But the system is, how is it working to keep workers subservient? How is that system served by continuing to link health insurance to employment, it just it's it's frustrating to me that you know if if you don't have a job if it, if you know linking health insurance to employment, uh, what what is the uh, aspect of that that keeps people subservient? Well, there's a there's another thing. We all need health insurance. Maybe when we're young, we can get away with not having it. It's my case. I was much younger when I freelanced for three years, and I didn't have any health insurance for those three years. Yeah. Fortunately, I, I had no significant uh, medical or dental issues, so I, I got away with it. But one of the reasons for accept, eventually accepting a regular job is at that point, I, I was uh, closing in on 40, and I thought, Hmm. Well, having health insurance, I think that would be a really good idea. So, you know, if you're a person who has some health issues, well, you really need that health insurance, yes. you know, uh, or maybe your health might be good, but maybe you have a condition and you have to take a medication that's expensive uh, uh, that to, to keep yourself healthy. And maybe you couldn't afford that medication unless you had the insurance and that insurance is attached to it to a job. This is the only advanced capitalist country. It's just about the only country. Most other countries also have universal health systems. So I, I, I've done a couple of articles on, on this. And, and the last time I, I did this, 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 is, this is how I tried to calculate it. I, I took the composite health costs for Canada, because it's our nearest neighbor, mm-hmm. and the three biggest countries in Europe, Britain, France, Germany. And I took the composite average of, of, of those four countries and compared it to what the average health costs cost in the uh, United States on a per person. And then, you know, uh, uh, multiplied by 300 million, our population very roughly. I guess it's a little more than that now. And the figure I came out with that on, on a yearly basis, and by now the figure would only have gone up. I did this a few years ago. The United States, we spend $1.4 trillion dollars per year extra than the composite average of Canada, Britain, Germany, and, and France, you know, our nearest, um, 
our nearest peer, our peer countries there. $1.4 trillion. So that's an enormous amount of money going into big pharma, into medical uh, establishment, all kinds of other places. And, you know, in this country, doctors are often reduced their employees of hospitals. So even yeah. we're getting to the point where even doctors technically are, you know, Proletarians, to use mm. the fancy term mm-hmm. for for a working for a working person, you know they're not you know independent business people mm. as they used to be. Some, of course, many still are, but uh, a lot of them are also becoming in, in, in employees. Right. So think about that enormous waste of money. And if we just had a universal health system, that that uh, uh, we would have so much cheaper uh, health care. And I think about all that money that gets drained off of that. And of course, uh, that in a way holds down wages because you know for mm-hmm. the employer it's very expensive for the, for them to pay out for that so you know they need to cut costs there so you know shaving something off the wages that they might otherwise pay is one way of doing that now you look at a system like they have in France where uh, I believe the figure if I'm not mistaken is 19% is taken out of your uh, paycheck and that 19% goes to the French social security system and the uh, French unemployment system so, uh, you know, and of course, we've been seeing all the mass uprisings yeah. in Paris and elsewhere in there as they're trying to raise the, the retirement uh, age there. You know, 62, it sounds like a pretty fair time. And of course, you know, naturally, the, the, the corporate media is saying, well, everyone else in other countries, they have to wait till they're 65 or 67 to retire. You know, why, why should they get right. such a better deal? And that's part of the right wing ideology. It's never like, mm. hey, those people have something better. Why don't we have that, too? It's always, hey, they have something that you don't have. Let's take it away from them. That's yeah. unfair. Right. That's, that's this mentality uh, that they have, because I know many conservatives in my life, and, and I, I'm always struck time and again how often uh, uh, their attitude is, and sometimes this is expressed not even indirectly, but quite directly, but, you know, I suffered, so everyone else right. should suffer too. Instead of saying, well, instead of suffering, why don't we change it so maybe we could at least suffer a little bit less. So instead of saying, like, yeah, why do we have to work till we drop? Why don't we all retire at 62? Instead of saying, like, hey, look what France is able to do. They have probably about the world's best health system. They have really Mm. good guaranteed retirement. Well, we should all be able to retire at 62. But instead, it's like, hey, they've got it better than we do. Let's take that away. Right now, the current... Retirement age for full Social Security, you know, if you're lucky enough to get it, is 67, and of course mm. that's going to inch up. So probably mm-hmm. for young people in their 20s or entering the workforce, they're probably. I, I wouldn't be surprised if if it'll. I, I won't be long enough for them to re, be around long enough for them to retire. But uh, you know, they'll probably have to be a good 70 years old to retire. Uh, you know, I, I I can easily foresee them raising the retirement rate at that. Uh, you know, and of course we can't live. On, on full full social security it's a it's a supplement and actually it was intended to be that you know a supplement to whatever you right. get from retirement but of course you know our father's generation and their fathers you know they had a pension you know that they got mm-hmm. uh when they retired you know none of us in our generation and certainly not the people in the generation but behind me uh we don't have anything like right. that so it's you know whatever we can save whatever we can manage to put into our 401k if we're really lucky we've got an employer or at least match part of what we put in there and you really got to scrape together it's, uh you know it's an interesting sure, way, to, way, way to define freedom you know i mean in, in a way 
it's free, but boy, people are really chained. I mean, it's it's much more subtle change, but it's change. And one of the things that you know we've seen in the in the earlier part of the twentieth century is that free time was something that the factory owners hated. You could not have free time. Owners of factories used to be able to restrict workers' free time to practically zero. It was never valued, never seen as useful. But in other countries, they recognized that free time, leisure time can actually be a good thing, can help people become more productive and more, dare I say, happy. Uh, so the concept of, of leisure time available to all seems to be a, a threat to the class structure. They're realizing that other countries that, that more free time can be a benefit to, to a still capitalist economy. What, what are some, and you know, the lack of free time, it brings up what producing all this stuff is doing to us, you know, and it, there are health effects. One of the adverse effects of unrestrained capitalism, of course, is massive overproduction. They flood the market and no guardrails, just more stuff, a lot of trash, also climate change, which as we said in the very beginning, they actually doom us all. It's real. Climate change is becoming more and more obvious. We can't afford to just ignore it and look away. So beneath this 21st century aspect, on a more traditional Marxian point of view, you say without the capacity of humans to produce more than what's necessary for their own survival, class society would be impossible. So my question is, where does class society and environmental degradation intersect so harmfully. Okay. So again, uh, as we discussed earlier, the capitalist makes the profit by paying right. the worker, the employee, much less uh, uh, than they produce. That's the, that's the surplus value, and that's where the profits and the accumulation of capital comes from. Now, and of course, the, the people at the top of the pyramid, you know, become more and more powerful and richer and richer and able to bend more and more things their way to the point where, you know, they have decisive influence over over the over the government. And then that all can get rules and everything changed to get everything more and more uh, in, in their in, in their favor. So uh, there has to be a surplus produced by somebody, uh, of course, by the overwhelming majority of people, since the huge majority of people, of course, get up and go to work and work right. for somebody every day. They can only have so many capitalists out there. We mm -hmm. can't afford too many wealthy people. So think about back to the, by far and away, the longest period of human history when we're our deep ancestors of the past were in the hunter-gatherer stage, right? You couldn't really have a surplus. You couldn't really have accumulation if you're a hunter-gatherer, you know, you pretty much had to work together, you know, to uh, uh, to together. gather mm -hmm. the plants. And, you know, maybe you went out and hunted something and had some meat once in a while. You had to say everybody had to work together. Everybody was on the move. So you had to, you know, you whatever you could carry, that was pretty pretty much it. Now, of course, I'm not in any way suggesting we go back to the hunter-gatherer stage, of course. But the point is that until humanity began to settle in towns and began to produce agriculture and began to produce a, a surplus that somebody could take, only then could you could society start uh, breaking down into classes when you and 
where you could start having inequality and, and eventually get to the point where, you know, you have untouchable monarchs and slaves and, you know, maybe some people in between. Uh, and, of course, as we've gone through the stages of, of, of economic development over the years, from slavery to serfdom to capitalism, or I guess uh, feudalism, serfdom was mm-hmm. being only one variation of feudalism, actually had a number of variations. But anyway, and on to capitalism, you know, these kind of inequalities uh, uh, persist. The class basis changes, you know, used to be lord and peasant, now it's capitalist and, 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 and worker. And of course, the whole concept of socialism or economic democracy, uh, in my case, I use those two terms uh, interchangeably, as I do in, in, in my forthcoming book, uh, What Do We Need Bosses For? That's coming out this spring from Otana Media. Uh, the uh, 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 why can't we have everybody have a say? Why can't we run things as cooperatives uh, where everybody mm-hmm. has a say? Or maybe mm-hmm. some big industries. I, I, from my own personal point of view, I think energy and and banking ought to be in in, yes. in, in public hands. Yes. That shouldn't be in private hands, even as as cooperatives. And I imagine different societies would want different uh, uh, different. Industries perhaps to also be in that, but you know, if we have a state company that that runs the water system or supplies the electricity, say, well, why can't that be under public democratic control? It it should be. Yes. Why can't we have public banking, uh, as people like uh, Ellen Brown from the Green Party yeah. uh, have, have well advocated for 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 many years? It's somebody I would definitely recommend uh, reading. She has a good blog herself, and. Um, uh, why not? We're all we're all educated, you know. We're all capable of thinking as well as doing, you know. We're 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 not brutes. Uh, and when we're in the workplace, why wouldn't we want a say in how things are run? Right. Why wouldn't we want to do it? No, doesn't mean we always win. So mm-hmm. you know, you whatever form this may be, whether you you there's a workers' council and everybody elects people, uh, or you make a whole decisions by a vote of the whole thing. So, you know, a couple of days a month, you know, you don't throw the on switch on the assembly line or you don't turn on the computer and say, you all get together and say, okay, these are the decisions that we have to make. That doesn't mean we sit there and we spend all day. How many bolts do we have to buy or, or, you know, do we, should we invest in a new computer? Not these little tiny nitty gritty things, but you know, the big decisions, what are we going to pay ourselves? How are we going to distribute this? You know, how much of our profit do we want to give to the community? How much do we want to give back? And what community, you know, what, community institutions do we want to give to to show our appreciation because we're part of the community we wouldn't be here without their support it's a mutual thing uh, you know it's kind of like in argentina 20 years ago when uh, everything broke down and people just took over their factories and says okay that's it we're going to do it ourselves yeah. so they would do things like they would uh send somebody over to the local hospital and say you know we really could use some uh, uh, a nurse on duty. So the, the, the hospital would send a nurse, and there would be a nurse on duty in the factory, and the factory in turn would give some free products uh, uh, to the hospital that they needed there, and this was a typical thing. So it wasn't all for money exchange. Sometimes you're doing these kinds of barter things. At the same time, of course, that the the now worker-run factory obviously has to is, can't be an island unto itself. It is an island of of, of economic democracy, but mm-hmm. still has to be surrounded by a sea of capitalism. So they still have to produce a product that people want to buy, or somebody out there wants to buy that's useful uh, and, and of high enough quality so that's going to get 
sports, so you're still subject to to competitive pressures to to some degree. Uh, but right. you know, it's obviously a much better deal for the people who are working there. No more, you know, and and some of these cases, the factory boss was really, really oppressive. Mm. Uh, certainly not an unknown thing in factories <laughs> and businesses anywhere in the world. Yeah. And now you can work at a human scale and work at a human pace. And, you know, you can help make the decisions on, on what gets produced and why and where, et cetera, et cetera. Well, why don't we all have that? Why shouldn't we all have that? And the thing is, we can. And it does seem like the, the powers that be, they want us to believe, they want us to believe that this is the only system that there can be, that there can't be anything else. And the fact is, we've bought into it, but now we're facing you know, possibly, you know, the, the climate change is really serious. The UN in it, you know, uh, says that, that 2035, yeah, we could be in serious, serious trouble. There are alternatives. We don't have to just sit there and buy it. There can be Co-ops, as you say, shorter work weeks. Other countries do that. Worker ownership and management, especially, I agree, public utilities, water, electricity, banks. I mean, North North Dakota, real conservative state, they have state-owned banks there. Uh, these, right, we, we shouldn't have to depend on ideas coming from the top down, but also from the bottom up. People who work it, who know the stuff, they can, and, and to have more free time. More free time is not such a bad thing. I mean, the, the old right wing, you know, is very much against free time, except for those with tremendous amounts of money. Uh, but uh, everybody's under that compulsion, as as we discussed here. But we can be more fully human. Though, in other words, though the world generally accepts how it is now, throwing up our hands, surrendering to the inevitability of global warming and actual loss of our planet's ability to sustain life. It doesn't have to be that way. There can be, as I believe it was Karl Marx who said, there can be a better world. So if people want to read more of, of your stuff, uh, you have a new book coming out, Pete Dalek, and uh, tell us about that and how they can get it. Okay, the new book is, uh, What Do We Need Bosses For? Toward Economic Democracy. It'll be mm. out this spring. Uh, it's imminent from Autonomy Media, uh, a very nice uh, uh, left press uh -huh. uh, here in Brooklyn. And um, uh, I would say uh, autonomymedia.org, if I remember correctly, is their uh, website. Of course, it might be autonomymedia.com. Gee, I should have texted yeah. you, shouldn't I have? Uh, anyway, uh, that, they have an easily accessible website. Uh, when the book is available later this spring, it will be there. People can also uh, check in with my uh, blog, which is Systemic Disorder, uh -huh. and the address on that is systemicdisorder.wordpress.com. And if uh -huh. that's too much to remember, it probably would be for me, to be honest. <laughs> uh, do, do, just do a text search for a Systemic Disorder blog, and it, it will come up. I will have, when the book is available for purchase... I will have a dedicated page uh, uh, for the book on that website. It will give you all the information uh, about that. And uh, also you can check out my current book, which is uh, It's Not Over, Learning from the Socialist Experiment. Uh, there's also a page for that on my systemic disorder uh, website as well. Thank you so much, Professor. We've learned a lot today. I really appreciate it. Pete Dolek, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. And maybe we can have more democracy. What a concept. Thank you. It would be a wonderful idea. Thank you for having me. Money. Money makes the world go around. The world go around. The world go around. Money makes the world go around. It makes the world go round.
If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.